Welcome to the New Books Network. There is something quintessentially American about the idea of the West. Though the time of Western expansion has long since passed, stories about cowboys on horses and pioneers panning for gold resonate with us to this day, living on in our books, our movies, and in our cultural imaginations. Through these stories, the West has come to represent values like stoicism, self-reliance, and rugged individualism. For many who call it home, the West also represents a heritage, a tradition, and a way of life. But how many of these collective conceptions of the West are actually true? In her stunning debut essay collection, Anything Will Be Easy After This, A Western Identity Crisis, author Bethany Mail reaches into the depths of her childhood on the prairies of Eagle, Idaho, to determine where the many myths about the American West begin and end. To help answer these questions, Mail goes on expeditions to an Idaho rodeo pageant, a lady antebellum concert, a livestock auction house, a gun range, and more. All the while, Mail attempts to reconcile her Western sense of self with what she knows to be true. That when we tell ourselves the same stories over and over again without evolution, a piece of them and of us begins to die. Today on New Books and Literature, please join us as we sit down with Bethany Mail to learn more about Anything Will Be Easy After This, available now from the University of Nebraska Press. Beth, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So the subtitle of your book is A Western Identity Crisis. Um, First, I'm wondering if you can describe the place you grew up. What are some unique characteristics of Eagle, Idaho? Yeah, uh, well, I think I have to kind of think about that in two parts because Eagle has become such a different place from when I grew up in it. So it's really um, how it's unique today is very different from how it's unique, how it was unique back then. And I think when I was a kid, when I was sort of the material I was really thinking about in this book, uh, it felt like, if not particularly unique, like I'm sure there were a lot of old kind of farm towns all throughout Idaho and the West, uh, certainly felt valuable in that it felt like a relic. It felt like it had these really clear lingerings of where it had come from. So just to give you like a sense of the landscape, I grew up on a 10 acre horse pasture and all around me were just more fields, a lot of other horse pastures, and then some agricultural fields. Six miles from that was this little tiny downtown, and it was just on a river shore. There was like a slaughterhouse. There was a barbershop, and in the back of the barbershop was the town library. There was a hundred-year-old, roughly a century-old, uh, it was called Orville Jackson's Mercantile. And when you walked in there, you really did feel like you were in Deadwood. It was like you could buy whorehounds and rock candy and handkerchiefs. That's all, for the most part, gone now. So what felt unique about it then really isn't even visible today, which I think is one of the main tensions that I really wanted to dig into in the book. I'm really glad that you bring that up, the kind of difference between then and now, because my next question is about, you know, what what was your childhood growing up in Eagle like? And then in what ways has your hometown changed in the years that you've known it? Yeah, yeah. So it was really pastoral and I mean, it was, and I'm sure I'm, this is also one of the like key considerations of the book. I'm so inclined even still to really romanticize my childhood there and to be like, it was pastoral and rural in all the best ways. I grew up riding my horse and, you know, riding my bike down these country lanes and playing in 
stitches and running in fields. And that's all true. I did. I grew up in this really, I think, kind of darling, rustic, gritty little town that I loved. But it was also rapidly suburbanizing. So and my childhood was really dichotomous in that way. It reflected like the, the double thrust of that place. So it was really rural. And then increasingly, it became less so and more and more suburban. So by the time I got to high school, my high school had 2000 kids in it. By and large, all of the fields had been developed into these kind of affluent, hulking McMansions. And it's a town that's 20, 30 minutes from Boise, the state's capital. So it really started to just feel like a suburb. And we kind of, I kind of jokingly say it has like a real, like real housewives of Eagle vibe, which is just such a stark contrast from the place that I grew up in. Um, like summers in Eagle were, this is probably the most unique thing about it. Thinking back to the last question, we, and maybe this is contestable, I'm sure it is, but we always said that we had the world's biggest Rocky Mountain oyster feed, which was every summer we would have the Eagle Fun Days, which is this weekend of like parades and a carnival. But the culminating event was we would go to this huge feed at a vacant lot and just eat fried bull testicles. And now, um, you know, there's been there's so much growth in that town that they circulated this petition to cancel it because it was like a blemish and so horrifying. So I think if you can picture like a real housewife going or picketing against a bull testicle feed, then you would have the eagle of my youth. <laughs> That's Maybe. very good. Um, yeah, something like that, at least. So, um, so in your view, having grown up the way that you did, what does it mean to identify as a Westerner? And what kinds of traits and stories are central to the American Western mythos? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I'm just so, I think there are so many different ways you can think about the West and being a Westerner, but I'm kind of immediately drawn to that prototypical mythic figure. Uh, and so I'm thinking of like cowboy, you know, all the prototypical stuff you see if you drive through an old, if you drive through a small farm town, even still, you'll see like those silhouettes metal cutouts of like men with their cowboy hats tipped down and their knee kicked back and I think that conjures the specific type of people in a culture surrounding those people it's like they're people who treasure place they really value the wilderness they love the landscape they think of themselves as really gritty and tough I think toughness is essential to our self-perception also this idea that it's a very wholesome and moral people although those words well, of course, very subjective, carry a really specific meaning here. And that's kind of like the Western figure at its best, I think, aside from the stickiness of how they might define wholesome and moral in ways that don't really square with me. But they're people who really love land. They love this place. And there's like a toughness that I've always found alluring, if not also problematic. But that figure can also have really problematic representations or it can be compelled into problematic behaviors. I think while they love the landscape and the place, they also really, or I can't decide if I should say they or we in this moment, somewhere in between. Um, but there's this resistance to regulation so that the things that we love aren't preserved or protected. And so invariably they go the way of the buffalo, if you will. Um, I think that's, really apparent 
in land usage and how we develop. We love the idea in Boise, we love the idea of the foothills and the prairie. But when it comes to growth and we're having, we're experiencing tremendous growth, there's no control over that process. So the fields that I grew up running in are just getting chipped away really quickly. And I think that reflects not just a resistance to sort of a self-controlled regulation, but also a real entitlement to land in place. This idea that's rooted, I mean, this is such an old piece of the story. It's like that Horace Greeley, go west young man, this entitlement to come here and stake a claim wherever you want, however you want, with little regard to whoever got here before you and disdain forever for whoever gets here after you. Um, and that breeds this kind of lack of harmony. We're not living in concert with each other. We might have different ideas of how to use the land, but anything that looks like a regulation that might bring us into coherence is just immediately resisted. Uh, so it's kind of, it just kind of has to collapse inevitably because it can't be sustained because the preservation that would sustain it is antithetical to our entire identity. Um, it's also an identity that I think has a lot to do with isolation. I think a lot of people in the West are drawn to at least the idea of it because of its openness, which is another way to say space, which for some people is another way to say distance from other people. So there can be a rugged individualism that I think loops back into that resistance to finding a way to live here harmoniously. So those are kind of the ways I think that the Western mythic figure can be really problematic. Well, those are really fascinating ideas too. Just thinking about kind of the way that um, the romanticized version of the West is kind of at odds with the American development, right? You know, the way that uh, we live in these kind of structured suburban communities. So um, another question for you is, so in an early essay, you begin to interrogate the veracity of the often romanticized stories that America tells about the West. So you cite William Kitteridge writing, quote, he said stories are necessary. They create meaning, but they also ultimately give out. Here in the myths failing, I am most intrigued. So what does that mean for a myth to fail? Yeah, uh, I think the myth can fail, a myth can fail in probably a lot of ways. But when I think about this particular myth, I think of it failing in a couple of ways. And I'll kind of start with the Kittredge moment because I didn't, I mean, I did read that. That's from one of his books. He was really formative for me in writing this book. He was a super important figure for me. But I went to a writer's conference. I went to AWP. I think it was in Denver somewhere in the West, because there were a ton of panels about the West and being a Westerner. And at all of them, I kept hearing writers talking about the Western myth and how it's failed and how it fails and it's just failed. And it was this assumption. It was just this foregone conclusion that it was this faulty, broken thing, and it was really bad. And I could like infer my own reasons for that. I could find my own answers for that. But I wanted someone else who had spent at that point a lot more time than me certainly thinking about this stuff to explain to me why this myth was so dangerous. So at the end of one of the panels, I asked Bill Kittredge, like, why is this myth so problematic? And I thought he would talk about some of the things I just talked about, right? Like the isolationism, the entitlement, the resistance to regulation. 
but he didn't. He just really flatly and broadly just said, and he looked at me like, this is the dumbest question I've ever heard. <laughs> and he's like, very gracious, but I felt very silly. And he just looked at me like, obviously, he just said, if we don't evolve, we die. And I was really struck by that because it was so global. I think it transcended the all the conversations I've been hearing about the mess, about the West in a really big way. That was just a totally universal statement. And also, it was something I hadn't necessarily been thinking about in terms of the myth. I think it's this idea that if the story we're telling ourselves doesn't reflect our reality at all, then it's not really doing the good work a story can do. It's just deluding us. So myths are always manipulations. They're always fabrications to an extent, but it's it's a spectrum, right? To what extent are they rooted in our reality and to what extent are they just totally fantasies. And I feel like he was sort of calling us out on the fantasy front. But in the book, in the course of writing the book, which became really about finding points of evolution out of the myths, so where have we as Westerners and even more broadly as Americans evolved out of this story? And where has that evolution taken us to a really productive and good place? Or maybe where has that evolution taken us to a really sour place? And I sort of think uh, that has a lot to do with, suburb with suburbia and then other instances where maybe the myth hasn't been evolved out of in both good or harmful ways. But all of that aside, a myth can reflect our reality. Let's say that, you know, Bill Kittredge, we remove that first piece and this can reflect our reality, but it becomes what the myth is compelling us toward. Like, what is it motivating us to do? So if this story were telling us to preserve and to live coherently with people who disagree with us or who came after us, then I don't think I would consider it as much of a failure. So I think it has to do with how well it reflects our reality and then maybe more important, what it compels us to do. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about this collection is how in many ways it's, it's a cultural critique centered around the question of Western identity in America, how we conceptualize the West, and also how we conceptualize country, um, especially in media like music and movies. Uh, so my next question is, in what ways does the band uh, Lady Antebellum, which is now Lady A, represent this sort of more modern portrayal of country Western? And how do you feel about that? Yeah, geez, this is tricky. Not because, I mean, I actually super love this question and I'm excited to talk about it. I just don't know how to refer to this band. <laughs> like, their name is so problematic. Uh, you know, there's like this weird racism around the antebellum piece. And then in 2020, they tried to rebrand themselves as Lady A, but there's already a Black woman performing under that name. So in their effort to become like more conscientious, they're usurping this individual. It's really fraught. So like in the book if everyone could just cross out their name and pencil in like the band with a problematically racist name that would be easier or better or something i wish i had done that but i had written this uh before the chaos that was 2020 um so yeah i guess we'll call them lady antebellum to hold their feet to the fire a little bit i suppose uh but to get to your question i was when i was writing this book their single need you now was everywhere it was like all over the place i'd be in restaurants and i'd hear it i'd be at stoplights and i'd hear it and i was home watching tv and i saw them 
give an interview and they just said, all I remember that interview is they said they were excited to represent country. And I was like, wow, that's a really fascinating statement. What does it mean to represent country? Uh, it's like a question I'm really interested in. So I started interrogating the group and it, I knew immediately just from that one single, I didn't really like their music or their packaging as a pop culture product. Like I did not have, you know, a lot of the book is me finding my susceptible points where I'm really charmed by Western stuff. And this was not one of those moments. But I did have to concede after I'd spent more time. I wrote kind of an album review. I went to a concert. And I realized through that process that they really did accurately represent the hybridity of this place because Lady Antivalm is like 80% pop music but then they'll throw in a fiddle riff or they'll mention bare feet or whiskey, like something that smacks of country somehow. And that really felt like a musical representation of my hometown. Like it's, it's mostly suburban now, but it has these wafts maybe of Western heritage that you catch every once in a while. So that was really fascinating to me. I didn't expect to think of them in that way. And for maybe like a half second, that endeared them to me a little bit. Like I was like, okay, maybe they deserve some credit. But that didn't really square either because I realized ultimately we don't want or even need everything to be authentic representations. And I think country music is especially one of the things that we don't expect or want that of. I think country music is all about story and nostalgia. And what I wanted from a group that was purporting to represent country was to elegize and to mourn and to pay tribute to what's been lost here. And they're just, they're not a band that's interested in doing that. And I don't think much country pop is to be fair. Right. Well, um, sort of thinking about dubious uh, representations, uh, (laughs) the the titular essay in this collection. So anything will be easy after this is a more journalistic style piece that follows a small group of young girls as they compete in Idaho's rodeo pageants. Um, you note that this once treasured tradition now seems to be on its way out with fewer contestants in recent years than ever before. Can you tell us what rodeo pageants are and what the experience of stepping into the world these pageant girls inhabit was like for you? Yeah, uh, rodeo queens are sort of like cheerleaders or ambassadors for the sport of rodeo. So every small town rodeo or every rodeo, it doesn't have to be small, has their own rodeo queen. So the Treasure Valley Stampede, Snake River Stampede has the Snake River Stampede queen and the Jordan Valley Rodeo has the Jordan Valley Rodeo queen. And she will start the night of the rodeo. The event pretty much starts with her sprinting around the ring. It's usually a young woman, I should say too, like late teens, early 20s. She'll sprint around the ring on her horse, carrying this really big American flag and doing this really distinct, like chopping wave. And I never know if that's an aesthetic thing, like how all of the British royalty, like do the swirly wave, or if it's because it's very hard to wave when you're sprinting a horse and carrying a flag, but it's really distinct. And they also have a really standard look. They all are styled the same way. So they have kind of really big, like, sexy by 80s standards, huge hair. They were really tight button downs, like pearl snap button downs and really tight jeans and cowboy hats and boots. When they're in competition, their attire is really different. But 
So they're present at the beginning and then throughout the rodeo, you might see them milling in the crowd or taking pictures. But in the sport of rodeo, there's only really mainstream rodeo, at least. Rodeo has a really cool like fringe thing going on. There's like great gay rodeo and all this other stuff. Like, But mainstream rodeo, if you're a woman, you can be a rodeo queen or you can barrel race and that's it. So she's really visible at the beginning and then she kind of recedes. You might see her milling around and that's about it. To be in competition for a bigger title, it's scaffolded kind of like Miss Rodeo America or Miss America or Miss Idaho. They don't love pageant comparisons. I think they think of themselves as doing like harder and tougher work, which I would probably agree to, although I haven't spent a week with beauty pageant contestants. So once they hold the title, they can then compete for Miss Rodeo Idaho. And then once whoever wins Miss Rodeo Idaho can go on to compete for Miss Rodeo America, which is held every year in Las Vegas. So you can see how it's sort of structured in a similar way. But the competition is really specific and they it's really grueling. I did not expect how intensely grueling those girls would be working. And I was familiar with Rodeo Queens. I grew up going to rodeos for like five minutes as a five-year-old. I barrel raced my high school boyfriend's sister-in-law had been a queen and like looked very much the part. So I, I didn't expect to be as surprised as I was, but they were putting in 20 hour days. They gave speeches. They had modeling competitions. They were always in their competition gowns, which are, if you can picture like a Vanna white dress, but made totally out of leather. <laughs> so these big like leather columns, but they're hot and like the hottest months in Idaho. Those are just sweating under so much makeup, all this leather, and the gowns are really elaborately embroidered and bedazzled, rhinestones everywhere, but then they also kind of smell like new cars, so it's this really distinct thing. So they're doing modeling, they do a dance competition, they are tested on Idaho knowledge and horse trivia, like Idaho trivia and horse knowledge, they give interviews, private interviews. The most important thing, I think everyone agreed when I was trailing them was the writing competition, which is kind of terrifying. They have to ride a horse that's not their own. And in fact, it's a horse that's not trained to be ridden in this way, it's like a cattle horse or something. And they are asked to um, write it and execute these really specific commands. So get it to lead with the left leg at the right time and then get it to gallop and then stop on a dime. Uh, and they were... I mean, all of the women, that was where they all actually performed the best the year that I was watching them. So it's a week of really grueling competition. And stepping into that world was probably the most, this is a really fun book to write, but this is one of the most fun pieces because it was like I'd been dropped inside of kind of some wild documentary. It was just this strange microcosm. I didn't speak the same language. I didn't understand how much, I mean, I, there were girls like spray painting boots, the exact same color of their gowns and then shoving their feet in plastic bags to like slide them into boots faster and like bobby pinning stuff into their scalps. Like it was just mind blowing the swirl of preparation and appearance and presentation that was happening around me. So I think I was really wowed by their effort and intrigued by how much of an outsider I could feel inside of this tradition that I felt like I was fairly familiar with. But I was also really as impressed as I was by the contestants. I was kind of horrified by the institution, 
when I was writing, when I was drafting this after I spent time with them, I asked to get my hands on like the rule book, like what, I was like, give me whatever you give the competitors when they're coming into the competition. And I just remember reading the list of criteria and it was stunning. And there were things like they couldn't have a boyfriend. So they would, everyone said they had cousins, which seemed much weirder to me. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was language like they could never have been pregnant, which at first I was like, maybe they mean because if I'm thinking of the pageant world, there's like Miss Mom Idaho. Maybe there's a Miss Mom, like it's a different thing. And then I was like, that's a weird specificity to have said never pregnant, right? I think it's just quiet, but very clear insistence on this virginal quality. Then there was language, they must be born a woman. So lots of assumptions around gender and sexual identity. And all of this was made only more problematic by the fact that the competition was building itself as finding the ideal Western young woman. And I just had a hard time accepting that those were the definitions we use when we think about ideal. So it was both like exciting to be around and really a little bit just, well, a lot disheartening. And it did put on clear display what we prize, what some people, what this like mean, what this, you know, what the myth prizes in the Western woman, which I think of as this impossible combination of virginal purity with really gussied up sexiness. And then this impossible modicum of toughness at all times. It just, it was like, head in my hands how how can we expect anyone to achieve all this and why would we want them to so that was that was that experience I guess (laughs) all that and then also to be just amazing on a horse right yeah exactly like there's true athleticism at work there for sure so more about horses because horses are kind of a central aspect I think of what we think of when we think of the west And uh, so in an essay called The Wild Ones, you deconstruct the symbolism of the Mustang in American culture, writing, quote, to call the wild horse untamable or free or even wild is sort of absurd, given its exhaustive history of commodification. So in the Mustang, I don't see wildness, but a metaphor for death. Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea and how you arrived at it? Yeah. So circling back to that Bill Kittredge moment, that was kind of one of the, like, that was kind of an impetus moment for me to start writing the book. I was looking, like I said, for instances where we'd evolved or where we hadn't. And in the Mustang, I saw something really particular, because that evolution here was kind of impossible because, you know, an evolution is a gradual sloughing of a form. It's a slow dying of one thing, but, you know, also a concurrent emerging of another. And that's not possible in the Mustang if you think of it in the way that I was in that moment, you know, when I'm in just a pen, I think looking at this one specific yearling and it was like, you're either wild or you're broken. It's this really immediate thing. There's nothing gradual here. There was just an immediate finality I saw in the Mustang that brought an extra weight and kind of sadness to this chapter, I thought. So one of my personal favorite essays in this collection, maybe related in some way to death, um, is Ladies' Night at the Shooting Range, which interrogates your lifelong and often contentious relationship with guns. 
So what was it like growing up with guns as such a central cultural artifact? And then what do guns represent to those who buy in to the American Western mythos? Ooh, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, the first, the first part's easy to think about. It's, it was very natural to grow up with guns. I think if I pulled the kids I grew up with, the vast majority of us had guns in the home. Even my grandfathers who were not, they're both from back East had guns like mounted on their walls, right? It's like hunting relics or whatever. But I remember playing in really small, playing in my parents' closet, like playing dress up with my mom's shoes and my dad's hunting rifles just leaning behind his tie rack. And I'm sure they were unloaded, but there wasn't this sense of like, it has to be locked away somewhere. They were just this really kind of casual fact of life. And then when I was in elementary school, my dad got me a BB gun for my birthday and I loved it. It was so many things. Like when I think of my childhood, that was one of my happiest pieces from it, I guess. It was another way for me to be outside. It was another way for me to connect the landscape. I was riding my horse. I was like packing my BB gun and targets with my horse and finding aspens to pin them to and shoot them. It was time with my dad, which I really loved. And I was also pretty good at it, which I think for a young girl was especially something that people and my dad prized. It made me feel tough and also capable. So it was really alluring. And then as I got bigger, I, of course, kind of outgrew it in the way all kids do with birthday presents. But um, as I got older, I became more aware of the cultural attitudes around the gun. And at first, I think that that kind of peeled back for me first to these Idaho outlaws, because Idaho is sort of known for its separatist factions. And there was you know, the Ruby Ridge standoff, which has, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, Tara Westover wrote about it really beautifully and educated, but Randy Weaver in Northern Idaho had this like 10 day standoff with federal agents. And I remember thinking like, well, why is he not just coming out and talking? And everyone around me, all my neighbors and my parents watched on the news and all their friends were just like, oh, like, God bless him, he's protecting his rights. And to me, it just seemed like, but there has to be a better way, right? Like, everyone's getting shot. Um, and then I got, a, I was, I was, I was still in elementary school when that happened. And then, but later. And then when I was somewhere in junior high, I became aware of Claude Dallas, who was this other figure who had preceded Randy Weaver, but he'd been shooting bobcats illegally he was poaching them and just living in the desert and these fish and game officers went out to talk with him and he just immediately shot them and killed them and then he ran and he so he was at large and when he was at large idahoans were just like cheering him on rallying him so much and when he was finally brought back for trial uh people went nuts it was like women would get all gussied up and wait for him on the courthouse steps they called themselves the dallas cheerleaders Someone, people were protesting at the judge's house. I think they killed his dog. So this attitude, not just that the gun could be like a pleasant thing that you use in sport, but that it reflected this attitude where we really revered lawlessness. Like we celebrated the gun in its worst use, ugliest manifestation. That's what we were here for. It was really unsettling to me. And I heard so many arguments growing up for gun rights all around me. And they seemed either really paranoid, like I have to be able to protect myself 
in the event of this tremendously unlikely scenario in which someone maybe breaks into my house, even though all the statistics say that I'm much more likely to incite more injury and violence in my home by having a gun, or they seemed really sentimental, which I part of me could appreciate because I think I have some of those sentimental attachments, even still, like the importance of hunting and sport and these wonderful memories of my father. But none of that seems capable of justifying the gun's cost, not when we're living in an America that is just fraught with gun crisis. I was 12 when Columbine happened, and it just became so apparent that there was really no safe corner. And I, it's, it was hard for me to square people who would put whatever their attachment is to the gun over our collective safety. So that, of course, invites your really smart question. What does the gun represent to people who feel very differently than I do? And I think they see the gun as a symbol of their liberty and more of that entitlement. I think they are free to have their gun and they deserve that as a right. It's essential to their identity as an American and their self-conception. And that is more important to them than whatever fallout the gun might cause. And I think it's a physical representation of just this right to do whatever they want. And of course, there's probably something about toughness at play there too. People feel powerful with their gun for obvious reasons. I think of you know me as a young girl feeling that power and I wonder if I got a gun today for the first time, if I would still feel that. I understand it for a child who feels, you know, children are by definition like small and vulnerable in the world. But why do adults predominantly, if we look at the statistics of like who NRA members are, predominantly white males, why do they feel so vulnerable? Like where is that need for security and that right to defend themselves come from? And that's where I think it loops back into that sense of paranoia that I get when I look at the gun rights conversation. But they must feel at risk in some way. It's just a way that I, I, I don't fully understand. Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned you brought it back to kind of thinking about yourself as a girl. Um, because my next question is about an essay um, regarding the movie True Grit, the, the 2010 remake. Uh, you write about your fascination with the portrayal of Maddie in that film, The Young Girl who in many ways embodies the myth of the mild, sweet before strong Western woman. So could you tell us more about that archetype and also about uh, how the American West was actually like for many women who um, were there in sort of the early settling days? Yeah, yeah. So I watched True Grit when I was writing this book. Uh, It was important for me to look at how the Western myth was showing up on a mainstream universal cultural level outside of just the West. I was looking at film and music and True Grit came out and I went and watched it and I loved it. Like I got obsessed with that movie, right? Like it hit all the susceptible Western parts of me. I was so charmed by every piece of it. And I was especially taken by Maddie and for those of you who aren't familiar with that story, it's based on a Charles Portis novel. And Maddie is this, I think, 13 or 14 year old girl whose father has just died. She has a mother, but her mother is this like grieving, parentheses, weak woman. And Maddie takes it upon herself to avenge her father and to like pursue his killer. 
And it's an impossible story, right? Like, but that's what I loved about it, that we would have this 13-year-old girl who had all this tough chutzpah, all this grit. She cries once in the film and it's when her horse dies, which is like the one thing Westerners will let you cry about, I think. And I understood in the process of watching that, that there was probably something problematic about just how charmed by her I was. So yeah, I started asking sort of the question that you're asking, which is what was that real experience like? And I think the frontier West was really brutal. I think it was a lot more brutal than we typically see in film and literature or, you know, well, definitely film, but anyways, um, I think women in particular felt that brutality in, in an acute way. At the same time, the West was in some ways a more liberated place than the East for women. We saw an earlier right to vote in the West for women. There were more equitable divorce laws. There was fairer pay for female teachers in the West. But there was also a whole lot of hardship. There was so much isolation because predominantly men went out and worked and women were often just very alone on the prairies. So there were really high instances of depression, laudanum addiction, psychosis. There was this trend for pioneer women to keep birds as pets just for the company of another voice. And the other place where we see women showing up in a really steady way was in saloons. And often they weren't women at all. Often they were orphaned or they'd come from broken homes and they didn't have any other opportunities and they were like 13 or 14. So this idea that you know, the, the frontier girl was a Laura Ingalls, who's like the spunky half pint, or Maddie, who can just enlist a bounty hunter and go off into the wilds and find her killer, is pretty preposterous, because I think the reality was a lot starker than that. So while anything will be easy after this includes many personal scenes and anecdotes from your own childhood and experiences... Um, it also draws heavily from literature, from history, from media, original reportage. What was the research process for this book like for you? Yeah, it was a super researched book. Um, well, I started writing it in graduate school. So one of the gifts of that process was I had to make a reading list for the book. And I was keeping a diet of about a book a week. And it was this nice balance. I went to all my professors and I just said, if I'm going to write about this place, what do I need to read? And I read a lot of novels and memoirs set here or about this place, but I also balanced that with scholarship. Uh, some really important books for me were Patricia Limerick's The Legacy of Conquest. That was huge. Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert, uh, Solnit's Savage Dreams, tons of Bill Kittredge. But outside of that reading there was so much reportage. So the book is built really out of me going to these different sort of quirky or fringe or outdated or barely still present cultural events. So I have a chapter on the rodeo queen competition. I have a chapter where I go to a cattle auction, where I go to a Mustang auction, where I go to a shooting range. So, so much of the book is just me going out into the world and then reporting back. And if it wasn't a, a cultural event, like specific to Idaho, like, the ones I just listed, then it was me trying to explore how the Western story is really the American story and doing that through mainstream representation like film and music. So yeah, a lot of looking out and doing that reportage work to come back to the page. So one final question for you, and that is, 
What are you hoping that readers will come away from the collection understanding better about American culture and especially how we conceptualize the West? Yeah, I think, you know, if I think really, if I baseline what I want readers to come away with, it's that I just want them to have the ability and the motivation and to understand the importance of looking closely and thinking critically about the stories we live inside of. So how might they be broken and compel us toward irresponsibility or communal incoherence? I think that that's the big takeaway for me is becoming concerned with living coherently with each other and with the places we occupy. Well, wonderful. Beth, thank you so much for your thoughtful answers to these questions and for being here with us today. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with Bethany Mayall, author of Anything Will Be Easy After This, a Western Identity Crisis on New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>